Good evening, church family. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me for session two of Revival this evening. Very excited about this session because it goes in depth into John Wesley's uh, being educated and how that helped to uh, shape him and certainly his his desire to be led uh, with the Spirit and certainly from the heart. So let me offer a word of prayer for us, and then we will get right into a longing for holiness this time in our church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, O oh God, a revival is a truly a, a beneficial, spiritually a rewarding thing, O oh God. I, I pray that this study, Lord, helps to uh, refresh. It, it helps to inspire and maybe even light the spark, O oh God, in viewers, Lord, that are watching this who have a, a desire, Lord, to, to learn more uh, about the history, the heritage, the theology about the man himself, John Wesley, who points us, Lord, always to you, Almighty God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lead us, O Holy Spirit. Bless, Lord, this study and those who watch it. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and powerful name. Amen. So, a longing for holiness. John Wesley's time in Oxford. I, I want to read some content that I hope will be beneficial uh, for you, so please bear with me for for a moment here. At the age of 10, John Wesley began his formal education at Charterhouse School in London, a school whose excellence pleased his father. John continued and attended on scholarship. His family could not otherwise afford the tuition. It begins there, and upon finishing his studies at Charterhouse, John Wesley was ready to enter the university. Now get this, in 1720, at the age of 17, he began his studies at Christ Church, one of the largest and most prestigious colleges that make up Oxford University. For most of his undergraduate studies, Wesley was like many college students. Biographer Kenneth Collins notes that Wesley frequented coffee houses, rode on the river, and played backgammon, billards, chess, cards, and tennis. Samuel Badcock, an 18th century minister and writer who knew the Wesley family, described Wesley during his college years as, in quotes, the very sensible collegian, baffling every man by his subtleties of logic, a young fellow of the finest classical taste with a turn for wit and humor. In other words, John Wesley was a normal college student. And just remember from last week's session, it was his mama, Susanna, who really lit that fire in young John, um, in having a desire to, to learn and to be rooted certainly in, in the Word of God. Shortly after completing his bachelor's degree in 1724, Wesley began work on both his master's degree and his ordination. As he prepared for ordination, John became more serious about his faith. Wesley noted that in 1725, he was exceedingly affected, in quotes, 
by reading Jeremy Taylor's The Rule and Exercises of Holy Living, a book that was first published in 1650. One theme of Taylor's work that seized Wesley's heart came from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Taylor taught that every action of nature becomes religious, and every meal is an act of worship, as well as an act of prayer, Taylor writes. Taylor's words challenged John Wesley to see everything he did as being for the glory of God. So let me ask you, is that something that you and I can in fact do? Can we have that kind of mindset? Think about that and use use Wesley's uh, life, his own testimony as something uh, to, to move us toward. So another passage that challenged Wesley was one he had prayed thousands of times throughout his life. It was the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It struck Wesley that sin can lead us subconsciously to live a different prayer, in fact. Mine, in quotes, is the kingdom and the power and the glory, end quote. Wesley noted that after reading Taylor's work, instantly I resolved, John Wesley writes, to dedicate all my life to God, all my thoughts, my words, my actions. He was 23 years old. And his decision would be pivotal to the Wesleyan revival. The idea of doing everything for the glory of God would become a mark of a Methodist, as it should be, in fact, of any Christian. Now, in 1726, Wesley began reading the devotional classic, The Imitation of Christ, written by the 14th century monk Thomas Aquinas. Today, nearly 700 years after it was written, the book still sells thousands of copies every year. I would encourage you to read it uh, if, uh, if, if you want some good, in-depth, somewhat dense uh, Christian reading and teaching. Wesley read it devotionally again and again. This is what he said the book taught him, in quotes, I saw that giving even all of my life to God would profit me nothing unless I gave my heart, yea, all of my heart to him. This reinforced Wesley's primary goal in life. Pay attention to this. You write this down even. To do everything for the glory of God and to love God with all that is within him. Now, by 1730, at the age of 27, Wesley read William's, William Law's recently published book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. It convinced Wesley, in quotes, of the absolute impossibility of being half a Christian, in quotes. He was determined to be all devoted to God what he called an altogether Christian. 
So as Wesley read Jeremy Taylor, Thomas Akempis, William Law, and others, he sensed that there was more to faith and holiness than he had, in fact, known before. He found an increasing desire kindled in his heart for that of something more. He longed to be, write these words down, an altogether Christian. An altogether Christian. That is definitely notable of John Wesley. So in February of 1727, John Wesley received his master's degree, and in August he left Oxford for a period of time to serve as curate for his father in Epworth. In 1728, he was an ordained priest, having previously been ordained as deacon in 1725. Wesley then, over time, returned to Oxford to resume teaching responsibilities at Lincoln College, lecturing, get this, in Greek, logic, and philosophy. It was sometime that winter that John, Charles's brother, William Morgan, and a fourth student, Bob Kirkham, began meeting multiple times each week, studying the classics on weekdays and the spiritual life on Sundays. They attended chapel services and weekly Eucharist. It was these regular gatherings of Professor Wesley with three college students seeking to become altogether Christians under John's tutelage that Wesley would later cause the first rise of Methodism. It started small, and, and that I think is certainly very notable. It was at Oxford, as John Wesley met with these college students, that the small group element of Methodism had its beginnings as well. Of course, the practice of meeting regularly to grow in grace and encourage each other was not new, but was deeply rooted in the experience of the earliest church. In Acts 2.42, we read, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And in Acts 2.46, we learn that these meetings took place in the temple and in the home. In the summer of 1730, William Morgan suggested they began to get out. Get out beyond the four walls of security that they were in and to begin visiting prisoners in Oxford to fulfill Christ's call of this parable, the sheep and the goats. Within a year, the group was calling on the elderly, caring for the poor, working with low-income children, going so far as to hire a teacher to help with the education of those children. These initiatives were the beginning of what came to be a defining mark of Methodism, pursuing not only spiritual disciplines aimed at deepening one's faith and love for God, but also acts of mercy and compassion serving as Christ's hand upon, among the poor and those in need of care. The group viewed these two activities as two sides of the same coin, loving God and loving neighbor. Each was an integral part of the other and served, in fact, to complement one another. 
One of the defining marks of Wesley's own faith and of the 18th century Methodist revival was that it involved not only the emotions, but also the intellect, okay? The head as well as the heart. Well put. I'm reminded, Reverend Hamilton says, of the movie A River Runs Through It. Wonderful movie. It was based on a novella of the same name. Among one of Pastor Hamilton's favorite lines, he writes, in the movie is when a Presbyterian father describes Methodists as Baptists who can read. Baptists were known for their evangelical fervor and zeal, while Presbyterians and Episcopalians were known for their emphasis on education and the intellect. The Methodist revival led by John Wesley sought to balance intellect, emotion, and the heart. Okay? Did you, did you hear that balance? Okay? Intellect, emotion, and the heart. And I think we've forgotten that as modern-day Methodists. They, 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 they and this balance have just kind of crumbled. God gave us a brain and a heart. Pastor Hamilton writes, he wants us to use both. Absolutely, and amen. Jesus taught us to what? Love God with our heart and our soul, as well as our mind and our strength. This union, think of it as a union, okay, of emotion and intellect has been a hallmark of Methodism. In America, the same folks who held religious revivals called camp meetings started what? colleges and universities to educate leaders who would in fact go out into the world and change it. So we are to love God with our minds and with our hearts. Biblical, biblical truth there. So a spiritual revival, he writes, Pastor Hamilton, a spiritual revival in our time must include both passion and intellect. That's where the Methodist movement got its fire and its start there. A couple of other things. At Oxford, the small band of Christians Wesley was mentoring shared his longing for holiness. For Wesley and his friends, holiness included a complete yielding of one's life to God, a desire to become like Christ in heart and actions acts of compassion for others, and a resolution to live one's life for God's glory. Among the ways Wesley pursued this quest for holiness was rising, love this here, rising at four or five o'clock in the morning for private prayer, fasting two days a week until mid-afternoon, and meeting with others to study the Bible and other Christian writings, and to hold each other accountable. Wesley and his friends attended public worship and received the, the uh, Eucharist weekly. They read and meditated upon Scripture daily. They actively pursued acts of compassion and mercy for the poor, the prisoners, and the elderly, and they sought to achieve lives of simplicity. So, let me ask the United Methodist denomination, are we still in that kind of spiritual discipline? Do we do it 
with dedication, with loyalty, uh, with fervor, okay? I, I think this can be the very grounds, okay, that can help to spark, once again, revival in a fledgling, fledgling denomination. Restoration projects. Let me, let me offer this. Wesley and his Oxford Methodists, through the pursuit of spiritual practices described above, invited the Holy Spirit to change them. Okay? And, and I think that's a great way of approaching any kind of revival that is needed. Okay? Are we willing to admit, okay, that, hey, we're falling short. Lord, we need you. We need the presence of your Holy Spirit to, in fact, change our hearts, change our spirits, and get us back on track that, track that leads us to a most righteous path that is always pointing to God, okay? And, and the Reverend uh, uh, points it out here. He says, they believed humanity is, in fact, mired by sin, okay? The, the minute we just brush off sin and act like it doesn't exist and it's a mere fantasy, we're in big trouble, okay? Hear me say that. Their hope was to be restored by the Spirit and made into what God, in fact, intends. God intends, not man, but God intends. Human beings who wholly love God and their neighbors as they love themselves. We as a denomination, we've somehow forgotten that completely, okay? Hold on to that. I also wanted to include an article called We're All Junkers. Read that. It's, it's, some, it's some great spiritual uh, insight for us all there. Let me, um, let me offer this. I included in an attachment as well, the almost Christian, one of the great uh, Wesleyan uh, sermons that I wanted you to, uh, to read. Let me uh, read this passage from uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 and 16, and then I'll offer some final, final thoughts here. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, Peter writes. Discipline yourselves. Set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So I'll end with this. Church, are we in need of revival? Are we in need of revival? As individual Christians, as local churches, as a denomination who calls themselves United Methodist, are we in need? of a revival. Wrestle with that. Pray about that. Talk to fellow believers about that. I believe the time is now that we have a spiritual re 
awakening, if you will. It is time. In order to prepare ourselves for a revival, we can't go into it half-cocked. We cannot go into it half-prepared or half-baked. We must go into a spiritual awakening, into a revival spiritually prepared, which means we must root ourselves in the Word of God, which means we must root ourselves in individual and corporate prayer. We must prepare ourselves for revival so that we can glean spiritually from it. So it's not just here today and gone tomorrow. We're on an emotional high and then we crash. A revival is meant to spark the faith and light the fire of the Holy Spirit so that we can in fact be changed and be more Christ-like. So I leave you with that this day. We will pick up uh, next week with our third session, which is a crisis of faith, Georgia and Aldersgate. That is a pivotal, pivotal time in John Wesley's life when he was really, really converted and convicted. So I'm looking forward to spending that time with you uh, next week. Uh, in that session. So let me offer a word of prayer for us as we go forth. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, the scripture that is on my mind this evening is Psalm 85. Psalm 85, verse 6, where it says, Revive us again, O God. You are the creator, you are the redeemer, you are the sustainer, you are the one, Lord, with that divine spark that can revive us once again. We cannot pull from the world. We cannot mine from the world and get spiritual revival because that is something that can only come from above, from you, oh God. So I pray that we can put agenda, that we can put selfishness, Lord, that we can put our sin aside to cleanse ourselves through the power of prayer and through the reading of the word so that we can be ready and fully prepared what you have in store for us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us as individual Christians. Forgive us as local churches and a denomination for forgetting, Lord, these vital things, Lord, uh, forgetting, Lord, how much we need your presence and uh, presence, rather, and instead uh, seeking self, Lord, and what is best for self. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Redeem us, Lord. Revive us. That, Lord, is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Folks, take care. God bless you. If you can please tune in uh, this Sunday, be there in person or watch it online. Reverend Joel Carter will leave us, will lead us rather through revival. Looking very much forward to uh, that moment in worship with him. Take care and God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Amen.